Since 2021, 43 states have provided substantial tax relief for taxpayers and businesses. But this year, a new trend has emerged in the opposite direction. They push from states to tax investment. From coordinated wealth tax proposals to higher capital gains income taxes, some state legislatures are going after high earners. But why is this push happening now? And how would these new proposals affect investment, job creation, and interstate migration if they were to become law? Hello, and welcome to The Deduction, a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, Communications Manager here at the Tax Foundation, and this week we are joined by our Vice President of State Projects, Jared Walzek. Jared, uh, good morning or good afternoon, depending on our listeners' uh, listening preferences. Good, whatever time of day it may be when you're listening. (laughs) Amen. Um, So, Jared, uh, as many of our listeners know, you lead our state practice here, and before we get into the meat of this week's episode, let's do a quick recap of last year. Uh, What did states do in the tax policy space in 2022? What didn't they do? I mean, really, the thing is they just focused on reducing rates, uh, cutting taxes in lots of different ways. We had income tax cuts. We had corporate income tax cuts. We had tax refunds and rebates. We had suspension of different taxes. We had tax holidays. Uh, Basically, states were sitting on mountains of cash, and they gave a lot of it back to taxpayers, sometimes in structurally sound and long-term ways, sometimes in one-time checks. But just about every state, 43 of the 50 had significant tax reductions in 2021 and 2022. That's quite, that's quite a big chunk of states there. So you said a lot of that work started in 2021 and wasn't just isolated to last year itself, right? That's correct. Uh, You had a lot of states come back to the well and make further cuts in 2022. A few that had been on the sidelines for the first year got into the act last year. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're entirely done. Uh, You're going to see more states, particularly on the individual income tax cutting side, uh, make some efforts this year. We're already seeing that in legislation. Okay, so let's talk about this year. What have you seen so far this January from the states? What we've seen is a division. For the last two years, just about everyone was on the tax cutting bandwagon, red state, blue state, sometimes the design looked different, but everyone was working on reducing tax burdens. This year, it's really going in two different directions. You still have a bunch of states that are focused on cutting taxes, but you now have a lot that are looking at much higher taxes on high earners and high net worth individuals. We're talking higher individual income tax rates, higher corporate income tax rates, changes to the estate tax, and very significantly wealth taxes and higher capital gains taxes and other taxes on investment and entrepreneurship. So why do you think that kind of move towards taxing investment is gaining speed right now. Um, I know you wrote about this on our website, taxfoundation.org. There was what, seven states earlier this month who all together at the same time proposed some sort of wealth tax legislation, correct? Yeah, seven states or eight states, depending on how you want to count it. Some bills are different in different states. And mm-hmm. you know what you count as a wealth tax is a bit of a difficult question. But yes, there are a significant number of states that came out simultaneously with significant new taxes on wealth investment and entrepreneurship. And what's notable here is that it's not really about revenue. Mm. Most of these states are experiencing significant revenue growth. They are at or near all time tax collection highs, and they're not really particularly concerned about where they're headed. I mean, we may be going into a recession, but they still have significant reserves. They have higher baselines than they had before. They're not in a different position than 
the remaining states that aren't considering these wealth taxes, these aren't primarily about revenue. Some of them aren't even tied to specific spending. They are more about a tax equity argument that's being mm. made, and they're bringing back some ideas from 2019. You saw the first inklings of a lot of this in 2018 and 2019, <laughs> and they got shelved because the pandemic kind of shelved everything. No one considered a lot of major new policy in 2020 if it didn't have something to do with pandemic response. Right. And then with revenues just absolutely skyrocketing and uh, all kinds of federal relief being offered, it was hard to propose a tax increase. No matter who it was on, it was just really hard. Mm -hmm. So now it's being dusted off the shelf and it's not really in response to a need. It's more in response to questions about high net worth individuals and what they should be paying. So it's, you know, some would argue it's a fairness thing. Others would say this is a an anti-competitive move, but what's really significant, it's not primarily about generating revenue for some specific purpose. It's about more the existence of high net worth individuals and what they should be paying. I think fair is going to be an interesting word this year because, you know, national stage, you got the fair tax argument right now, which is totally different <laughs> from a fairness tax push here. Um, so let's let's kind of get down into uh, the wealth tax there specifically. Um, I know we're both uh, Anglican. Um, Proverbs probably has a different definition of wealth than the U.S. government uh, or state governments or commonwealth governments. But how does a wealth tax exactly work? How are politicians here defining wealth? Wealth is harder to define than one might think. Uh, there have been different definitions over the years, over the ages, but there's even different definitions in state tax legislation. So in some cases, we're talking about pretty much all wealth. Uh, we're talking about your tangible and intangible assets. That can be everything from things like your stocks and bonds, which are relatively easy to value, they're traded on an open market, to your ownership of a business that might not be publicly traded or publicly valued. It can be your real property, which would already be subject to a property tax, also your personal property. Um, it can include for really high net worth individuals, things like artwork or other things they may own. And it gets difficult both because assessing the value of something that's never been sold can be very challenging. You have a startup business. You create a new Silicon Valley company. Maybe someday you hope to flip it to one of the major companies, uh, make your fortune. But right now, it's not really bringing in any significant income streams. On paper, what's it worth? You know, maybe it's worth hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. Maybe it's worth nothing. Uh, but you don't have the cash flows right now. Someone has to assess the value of that tax you on it, and then you have to come up with the resources to pay it. You have some people who are going to be um, asset rich, at least in theory, but very cash poor. And that's the challenge in these definitions. And different states are going different ways. In Washington state, the proposal is to focus on financial instruments. So it is stocks and bonds and other things that do generally have a value associated with them. In California and Hawaii, it's everything. And then other states have different approaches to wealth taxation. Okay, so there, if I'm getting this right, some states kind of have a idea in place for who ultimately is going to say what's his wealth or what is Jared's wealth here if you're a taxpayer here, but some are kind of 
omitting that detail right now just to kind of get the point across that, hey, we need to raise taxes on the higher net worth individuals? Well, I think everyone has a definition of wealth, but it's going to vary. In Washington state, they've defined it as like tradable financial instruments. Uh, that's something that we, at least we understand definitions of. There's still huge challenges. You're taxing people on all of those assets, not just the gains in any particular year. Uh, you're taxing even if there are losses in a given year, and you're taxing on something that's not terribly liquid, where you might have to sell some of your share to be able to pay the tax. But in a state like California, you're taxing on everything. Uh, if you're the owner of a small business, or maybe a future large business, <laughs> um, but you're the owner of it, uh, you owe taxes on what someone deems to be the value of that business. And this is not easy to do, which is why uh, the uh, some initial estimates of how much they will pay in California just to administer this tax, $660 million per year to administer it. Uh, that's an awful lot. Even in a yeah. state like California, those are astonishing figures because they know this is tough. You alluded a little bit to it earlier, but why, why do you think this is happening in such a coordinated effort now? Was the 2022 election just a big year for wealth tax advocates and investment tax advocates and they're in charge now? Is, is Elizabeth Warren's reach just this long, you know, and she's still inspiring the next generation of policymakers? Um, is it different? Is, is it psychological here or is, is there an economic argument that these states are proposing along with it? For the most part, it is an equity and fairness argument. And of course, uh, what fairness means is going to differ for just about every person. Uh, but it is not primarily an economic argument. I would argue it's not even a revenue argument. But isn't to say there isn't revenue that you generate, sometimes significant revenue from some of these taxes, at least assuming you can keep the taxpayers in state, which could be a challenge. Maybe mm -hmm. We can talk about that a little. Uh, but even though policymakers like having more revenue, a lot of this really is about fundamental beliefs about wealth and high net worth individuals and how much you should have perhaps or what you should pay based on that. That's why these were dusted off the shelf. Uh, they had been ideas that were already percolating at a time of significant revenue growth, uh, but they became unviable during the pandemic. And now that things are getting a little back to normal, they're back, not because there's a need, but because there's a window of opportunity. I mean, as we wrap up this first section here, um, I'm a middle-class guy over on the East Coast. You know, I know um, some of my family listens to this. They live in Michigan. Do these proposals in California, elsewhere, on wealth and investment taxes, do they really make an impact on taxpayers elsewhere? Or should I just, you know, count my blessings that I'm not living in a state proposing a wealth tax right now? Well, you and I aren't paying either any of these and yeah. people we know probably aren't paying most of these. You can look at a handful of them, some of the changes to capital gains taxes in some of the states and say, yeah, we know some people who might pay those. Uh, you talk about the wealth tax proposals in California or Washington or Hawaii. Um, I wish I knew the sort of people <laughs> who paid. They are very, very wealthy people, and therefore they're not very sympathetic in some ways. If you're talking, I don't want to get into class warfare stuff, but you know, you talk yeah. about that, you say like, those people, they can afford it, right? Uh -huh. The problem with this is we pay too, not directly. You and I will never write a check for one of these things unless they dramatically change. But each of us, all of us, will have some sort of cost because it's going to reduce investment returns. It's going to reduce overall investment in this country. It's going to really stifle innovation. This in particular, uh, the California proposal, for instance, it just 
it strangles a lot of the innovation that we associate with that state. Uh, startup businesses will struggle under this. And we all bear the cost of that because we don't get the benefits of some of that investment and some of that innovation that happens. And then if you're in one of these states, yeah, you're probably not paying it. Um, if you're listening to this and you are paying it, we'd love to talk with you. Uh, but uh, yeah, but you're probably not. But you may pay in some ways when people leave your state because uh -huh. you will have out migration of high net worth individuals and they're going to take with them the taxes they're already paying. They may take with them some of the jobs they're creating in those states, the philanthropic efforts they're uh, undertaking in those states. It is costly to lose your wealthiest individuals. And I know we'll talk about that migration uh, point you made when we return after this. And we are back. Uh, this is our section we call Myths and Misconceptions. We go after some common talking points and um, theories surrounding some of these uh, discussions we have the Tax Foundation. Get down to the nitty gritty. Are they true? Are they not true? Um, and kind of get down to the bottom of it. So, Jared, um, let's start with that migration thing first. Uh, there are people out there. We, we had a post, for example, earlier this year that showed that people moved to lower tax states last year based on the data. Um, there are some out there who say, if you increase taxes on these higher net worth individuals, they actually aren't going to leave. A person who lives in California is going to stay in California. Um, do you think that's true? Or do you think these wealth taxes will cause some feet to start walking? I think they're going to start a significant out migration if some of them are enacted, particularly if we're talking the full-fledged wealth taxes in California or in Washington or the mark-to-market of capital gains income proposal in New York. These are big taxes. And migration is real. Tax migration happens, and it happens in two ways. One is direct. The people look and say, this is a ridiculous tax burden. I can get all the amenities I want and work how I want in another state and I'm moving. And uh, the higher net worth individuals have a lot more flexibility on that than lower income individuals do anyway. The second reason people move is because the economic activity has moved because of taxes. Maybe they're not the one that is facing the higher tax burden or that tax wage isn't significant to them, but because of other activity moving because of taxes, they're going where the jobs are, where the opportunities are. When you look at something like a wealth tax, this is such an extraordinarily large tax on the investment income of high earners and high net worth individuals that it makes a, a ton of sense for them to pick up and move somewhere else to make somewhere else their primary residence to domicile there. They can still spend time in whatever state they want. They can still have a house in California. They can probably afford to, but they don't want to live there. Take California, top rate of one and a half percent. And you might say, well, that's not that much. What's one and a half percent? But remember, this is being imposed every year on all of your assets. Yeah. That's significant. Let's say that you have an investment that is returning 10% a year and you hold on to this for 10 years. When that time period is up and you add up all the taxes you've paid over that period, you have lost 30% of your investment return, 30%. Yeah. Now, compare this to what you'd pay in federal income taxes 
we have a 20% capital gains income tax at the federal level. You'd be paying 50% more to California on the wealth tax than you do in your entire federal income tax burden on all of that investment income. Would you leap for that? I think a lot of people are going to say yes. So it's really not a 1% tax often is what you're getting at here. It's a stocks and flows issue. It's you <laughs> can't compare a one or one and a half percent wealth tax to an income tax rate. There's a radical difference because this is on the principal and mm. not on the return. Um, so Jared, do these proposals actually have momentum to pass um, or is it kind of just more of a messaging posture from states right now? This isn't just messaging. Now, that doesn't mean that all of them are going to sail through legislatures. These are big proposals. Uh, I think they are rightly considered to be really momentous in these states. Uh, but if you look at the sponsors and co-sponsors in California and in you know Washington and in Maryland and in other states, these are bills that are being taken seriously. Committee chairs are putting their names on them. Uh, they will have hearings in California. A similar proposal actually managed to make its way through the lower chamber, the assembly in uh, a few years ago, and it failed in the Senate. Maybe that will happen again. Uh, huh. Certainly supporters of these should not take for granted that they are going to pass just because these are uh, generally blue states with blue legislatures. They will be difficult. But those who are concerned about them shouldn't take for granted that, oh, these are just messaging bills. These are being taken seriously. There's a coordinated effort and uh, they could pass. And I know, Jared, you're not you're not a lawyer, but some of these wealth taxes in the past have had constitutional challenges at the state level, correct? That's correct. Both state and federal constitutional issues. Uh -huh. uh, the state ones can sometimes be resolved because, of course, the state can amend its constitution. That's the case in California. The wealth tax would be unconstitutional under uh, the current constitution. And there's a parallel constitutional amendment that would change that. In Washington state, it would also be unconstitutional. Uh, there have been long-standing efforts to change their constitution's uniformity clause, although for whatever reason, some Washington lawmakers seem to think they can go forward with this with or without that constitutional change. I would say they're wrong. Uh, uh, but beyond that, there's the federal constitution. We have the commerce clause. We have all kinds of uh, reasons to believe that at least some of the ways that some of these taxes are being proposed would violate the federal constitution. These are taxes on all of your assets worldwide, not just those that are located in a state. Now, we've established that your home state can tax your worldwide income and then has to give you credits uh, for <laughs> taxes you pay elsewhere. We haven't really established that they can tax your worldwide wealth, uh, mm. wealth that has nothing to do with the state. That's new. Uh, and then you have states like California that are going one step farther. They're basically acknowledging the migration issue. They're saying, yeah, we know if we put this huge tax in, people are going to leave. What are we going to do about it? Well, we'll make it almost impossible for them to leave. And hmm. then we will keep taxing them even if they do. So the proposal is an exit tax with 10 years of continued liability on some of the assets you had when you were in California, uh, even when you live in another state. Uh, constitutionally, that seems to <laughs> violate the Dormant Commerce Clause. It's uh -huh. taxing activity that really has nothing to do with that state. It also is a violation of the constitutional right of travel. Uh, so there's a lot of things that can come up here. Tax reform is hard in many, many ways. So Jared, as you mentioned during this, um, these taxes, they're not really a revenue solution. Uh, we know that they will drive people to move. Uh, they're going to hurt innovation, hurt investment. So as 2023 gets started, 
where would you personally urge lawmakers in states to focus their efforts this year? Um, if not these wealth taxes, if not this fairness argument, where where would Jared Walczak tell a state legislator, here's what you should be doing this year? What is fascinating that at the same time that we have these eight states talking about much higher taxes on investment, you have many more states saying, no, we actually have room to cut. We can reduce our individual income taxes. We can work on our business taxes. We can make the tax code more efficient and reduce tax burdens. I think that tells you something about the economic climate and a landscape. And it also tells you something about the competitiveness in tax codes, uh, especially in this post-pandemic, more mobile environment. And we're getting this bifurcation where some states are going to go all in on high taxes and, you know, I think driving out innovation and economic growth and other states are all in on being a landing spot for individuals and businesses who don't want that. So there are some states that clearly have the capacity right now to cut tax rates. Maybe they didn't do so over the last couple of years and they can catch up. You see that in states like West Virginia Uh that weren't part of this um, previous round, but have an opportunity now. Some states cut moderately and honestly could have gone further and planned to. States like Oklahoma and Idaho and Montana and many others. Uh, But even those that might say, okay, we've already done that. We're not sure if we can cut rates further. Uh, This is a good opportunity to think about structural reform. The last two years, revenues were so robust that states didn't really have to think about trade-offs. They could just cut rates, provide relief for everyone. Now it's time to lock in some of those gains by structurally improving the tax code, especially in a high inflation environment where investment is costly. uh, It makes a lot of sense to lock in uh, full expensing of uh, capital investment, regardless of what the federal government does. You shouldn't have essentially a significant inflation tax burden on your investment if we want companies to be able to retool. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a landing spot for uh, remote workers, and if frankly you just want to make life easier for everyone, uh, some mobile workforce reforms, raising the threshold before someone has to file, it makes no sense if someone spends a day or two in your state to make them file and pay a few bucks Mm -hmm. that cost you to process. It's it's lose-lose. Uh, And we need to make sure that tax codes are punishing businesses or individuals uh, for working remotely. There's tax benefits. uh, There's taxable activity associated with that, but it shouldn't make life miserable for those doing it or it's not going to happen. So there are a lot of ways that states can focus on capturing uh, the benefits of this much more mobile environment and the ability of more individuals in businesses to migrate and to make taxes and cost of living a significant factor in their location decision making. We see some states that are jumping on that and others that seem to be going in the opposite direction. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I know that mobile economy, it's something you write about often and stress about often um, on our website and elsewhere. Um, and we'll be sure to link to your recent work on these kind of proposals that are going around um, and much more in these episode notes. Uh, but Jared, uh, it's, it sounds like you've got a busy spring ahead of you as usual, or still winter technically. Um, but anything people can look forward to the next couple of weeks coming out from you? Or are you just going to be traveling everywhere? Uh 
Legislative testimony is popping up. Um, we have a lot of opportunity to engage on a wide variety of issues. There's states looking at property tax reform and relief, states looking at income tax relief. We're going to be writing and researching about the ways that states can uh, improve their tax code for the long term to capture the zeitgeist. Um, we are going to be writing about what reforms make sense and how to balance that and right size it. Um, you know, I, I love tax relief. I like balanced tax relief. And we've had the responsibility in a handful of states to say, you know, pump the brakes a little and make sure you get this right so that it's sustainable, that it meets your needs. Uh, we're going to be focused on a lot of issues and you can certainly follow the policy work on the website, as you mentioned, but we might be showing up in your state sometime soon as well, because we are talking a lot with lawmakers across the country, helping them get tax reform done. Surprised to hear you like tax relief. That seems unique. I don't know people like paying less than taxes. <laughs> Who wants that, right? Um, and if people want to follow your work, uh, where can they find you online? Uh, on Twitter, it's uh, just my name, at Jared Walzak. And then, of course, uh, regularly writing at taxfoundation.org. That's great. Well, Jared, um, as always, insightful, informative. Thank you. And we will be having you on again soon this year, I'm sure. Thank you. All right. Take care. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carbajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and the deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation, as well as on Twitter at DeductionPod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.